tribal. What do we mean when we use that word? We're going to talk about it today in episode 7. We're also going to talk about motorcycle gang morality, software taste testing, and Apple evangelism. Is culture more impactful than company strategy? How can you find what truly holds meaning for consumers? Today, me, Emily, and Matt discuss the consumer journey to tribal devotion. Hey guys, welcome to the Design of Experience, conversations about the ideas that make us feel a tribal devotion to the things we love. Today, we are going to talk about what tribal devotion actually means. Hmm. Yeah, and that voice you heard right there, we've got Matt DeVille back with us again. I think we're, Steve, we're going to establish him as a friend of the show, right? We think Matt DeVille's on the cast now. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Here and there, in and out. I'm good with it. Once in a while. (laughs) So um, we have had a few conversations. We're a few episodes into this podcast, and we've been talking with people that are listening, had um, conversations with some clients. And one thing that people really want us to dig into and talk about is why did we choose the words tribal devotion, and why do we care about them enough that we put them in the intro of the podcast? So Steve and I were recently in Chicago with a great team of people from U.S. Cellular. One of those awesome people was Steve DeCaspers, and we were talking to him about this idea of tribal devotion, and he was really interested about that. Um, Steve Smallman, next to me, um, do you remember him talking to us about that? Yeah, he was talking about the fact that, you know, when we talk about trying to create a community of shared beliefs, which is really what we're doing with branding, we're not so much selling, you know, stuff to people. We're trying to do business with people who believe what you believe. That's why we spend so much time talking about the why. Mm -hmm. And so in the idea of tribal devotion, Steve was making the simple point that, uh, you know, you almost need like a common I don't want to use the word enemy, but we have to be up against something together. We're in a we're in a struggle to prevail against common forces that oppose us. Yeah. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into the episode. Yeah, I'm glad he challenged us with that idea because it really brought this episode to life. He said, tribal devotion cannot exist in a vacuum. There have to be people who stand against the cause or belief that you're trying to go up against. Steve DeCaspers, Director of Marketing at U.S. Cellular. (laughs) But before we do that, I kind of want to go back to 2009. Can you believe that's 10 years ago? And I want to jump back and remember one of the most highly watched TED Talks of all time by Simon Sinek, and it was about something he called the golden circle. I know a lot of people have probably listened to this, but 10 years later, I still reference this talk all the time. And I love it because he drew basically a bullseye on a whiteboard, and it had you know three circles. And on the innermost circle, it says why. The second circle, it says how. And on the outer circle, it says what. And he says most people, he's referring to leaders, but you can also apply this to organizations and how they inspire people. Um, he says most people work from the outside in. They think about what, then they think about how, then they kind of muster up a why. But leaders who inspire work from the inside out. They start with the why, then they figure out how, and then it kind of creates its own what. And the famous line that he says is, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And to kind of really seal it in, he says, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. He did not say, I have a plan. He Hmm. He inspired people with 
them being able to identify very strongly with what he believed. And he was not the only activist of the time, but the way that he approached his message, the way that he shared it, is what allowed thousands of people to gather um, in D.C. that day, and they didn't even have social media to make it happen. There was such a strong shared belief about that cause that it spread like wildfire. And one final thing that Simon Sinek says is that, and like you were saying earlier, Steve, the goal is not to do business with everybody who needs what you have. The goal is to do business with people who believe what you believe. And that's a little bit of like a challenge to all the marketing courses that I've been through in my life because, you know, talk about supply and demand, finding a need, providing it with a product. That's still true. But I think to do it very successfully and for brands to catch on in the way that we're so fascinated, you need to do business with people who believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. So Steve and Matt, you guys have both been in some of the work, the um, branding workshops that we've done with clients. And we often ask them, why are you in business? Why do you think you're in business? And I'm pretty sure that most of the time, the first answer they think of is not really that deepest, truest response. But um, yeah. I don't know. You guys have, have seen that too, let's, right? Let's just try it as an exercise. Ask me why I'm in business. <laughs> Matt, why are you in business? As to sell VP? money. <laughs> to sell, No, to make money. Well, selling money, that would be interesting. To make money and to achieve world domination. Oh, you know? okay. That's a classic response yeah. though, right? You I know? see that a lot in you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm pretty aggressive, so. Yeah. You know, that's awesome. I don't think that's why you come well to work done, every Matt. day. Well done, Matt. Well said. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, just the truest answer is rarely the first thing that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's, that's actually true. It takes a, uh, I think it takes quite a bit of process and digging and time mm-hmm. and getting in your reps and, you know, meaning, you know, having this conversation, rehearsing it with many different people to, to really kind of discover deep within yourself why is it you're in business and and the kind of the question that we ask behind that is what is the business you're in Mm -hmm. Um, and a classic example is our friend Tony Shea from Zappos um, and you know the book entitled Delivering Happiness which we've referenced in a previous podcast but they weren't selling shoes they were selling wow like mm-hmm. happiness, the simple idea that, you know, you order a pair of shoes and like the next day it shows up and you're like, wow, that is so cool. And that, that cool factor, that wow is why they were in business. And knowing that about themselves to create that moment of delight allows them to morph their business model as many times as they need to, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And Tony Shea, fun fact, he owns like three pairs of shoes. That's it. Hmm. But that just goes to show how much he believes in his He's not a big shoe guy. No, he's not a big shoe guy. Matt, are you a big shoe guy? No. (laughs) No, I get a pair of shoes. I wear them obsessively. They fall apart in six months. I get a new pair of shoes. Your your most recent pair of black and white Vans are, I think, my favorite pair that you've had yet. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're Vans. Yeah. They have a tribal devotion. They do. They do, and it's been exploding. It used to just be skateboarders. Now it's teenagers midlife crisis people like me you know <laughs> we put them on we feel cool yeah, our feet feel bad but we feel cool <laughs> so as we were preparing for this um, episode i wanted to do some research to see if anyone had a really solid definition of tribal devotion um, or tribal marketing or anything like that 
And I did come across this guy, Brendan Richardson. Um, He writes the book, Tribal Marketing, Tribal Branding. Um, And the subtitle of that book is really fascinating. The subtitle is An Expert Guide to the Brand Co-Creation Process. Hmm. I just kind of wanted to pull a little bit out of the intro of his book. But he talks about um, tribal marketing seeks to establish what it is that holds meaning for consumers, and it seeks to support those things. It's about relationships, and it supports this um, a given tribe's agenda, and thus becomes part of the fabric of the tribe. I loved that sentence. It's a fabric of the tribe, and he goes on to talk about how it's a true when you have a brand that has a tribal devotion to it. For that to happen and to come into being, there has to be a two-way dialogue between the buyer and the creator, and there has to be this interactive relationship, and. I loved this idea that a brand would create a product or a service out of a love of some kind of experience or belief, and then they put it out into the world, and it resonates with people, and this dialogue begins. And the people love it genuinely. It's not forced on them. They kind of speak back to the brand, and then they create more products or shape their products, and there's this interactive relationship. So that was um, just a really great find as far as you know finding a a true definition of this. Um, and the classic example that people know from time and again is Harley Davidson. Hmm. Um, I don't think Steve or Matt, I don't think you guys are big motorcycle fans, or maybe you are and I don't know it, but. I'm a motorcycle maybe. fan, but mm-hmm. I will never own one because I'm a married man <laughs> and my wife has said that is a big fat no. <laughs> you are not alone. Same. Not going to happen. Same here. Yeah. yeah, but the fascinating thing about Harley is that, and you learn about, I hate saying this because it seems so cliche, but it, it is fascinating, the scope, the range of demographic, socioeconomic class of people that love Harley and how much that is a, a brand conversation and people literally rally like for the brand. They, you know, they share how much they love it, why they love it. It's a big, huge community. Yeah, and that happened before the advent of social media. Yeah, yeah, um, great and point. And so when you were, you know, going through this idea of co-creation, I immediately thought of the explosion of dialogue back and forth mm-hmm. that happened when Twitter came out. Mm-hmm. You know, brands who really embraced that could have conversations with their customers. And, you know, more often than not, it was like, hey, Comcast, my cable's out, mm-hmm. you know. But if they didn't get a response back, the Twitter user would get very angry. But the point is, Harley did this a long time ago. Yeah, and I love that you said that because I think we take it for granted now that we can contact and talk with a company through, this dates me, Web 2.0. But but this idea of of Twitter, of Instagram, of Facebook, I think I kind of take that for granted and we expect it now. But that very idea that it's kind of table stakes, that we expect to be able to converse with a brand, it's actually a lot harder to implement than you would think. It's a big lift. Definitely. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, Facebook, you'll go to a company's page and it, you, you have the ability to, you know, send a message. And a lot of times it'll just say, usually responds within 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. 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 I would love to know more about the Harley story and how that happened in an analog way over mm-hmm. time, over multiple generations, because, you you know, that is a family. It is a community. It's a tribe. Yeah, mm-hmm. And if sure. you are a Harley owner you are automatic friends with someone who is also a Harley owner. You stop, you mm-hmm. talk, you wave. Um, I think it gets into this this thing that we uh, around here do intuitively and 
you know, it's I know it's how I approach clients, relationships, you know, product launches, brands. There is something inside of me that wants to know, like, who are you guys? Um, I need to know you. I want to understand you. I have to understand you in order to know how to talk about you or how to write copy for you or how to orchestrate creative for your campaigns. Who are you? Brands that have successfully established this idea of tribal devotion, or for that matter, we're going to talk a little bit about tribal leadership inside of companies. Mm -hmm. When you feel like you've established tribal pride, there is a shared knowing, a shared understanding. And then, as we've been saying in all these resources, which will be in the show notes, that there is shared beliefs that are created. And so one of the things we're trying to help our brands bridge to their buyer is rather than just getting your stuff in front of them in a way that appeals to them, getting everybody that needs your stuff to buy it, you're really trying to establish a community of shared beliefs. People who think like you, who end up believing what you believe about your method or your solution or your product. And there's where the most natural community of affinity is born and can begin to perpetuate itself so that your buyers and your you know your community they become the community of advocacy for your product and for your brand not that there's a mercenary motive behind it all but it's just we want to know how how can we do business the way we want to do life yeah um and that i think that's what we're talking about here I think something that's always a struggle when we get into i always refer to the drafting table or when we're struggling through the you know, both parties are struggling through to try and find, you know, how are we going to execute this part of the, the plan or how are we going to do this piece of creative? I feel like we often want to resort to these very um, structured, tried and true like processes and marketing words. But if you think back to like being a little kid or your own kids, they very quickly pick up on what they like, whether it's like, are they into sports or are they into, you know, some type of talent or are they into like arts and crafts? Kids know right away what they want to do, what they want to be part of. And they find their friends naturally. They gravitate towards things that they like. It's just part of human nature to have, you know, beliefs, have interests. We are always trying to pull people back to this idea that humans are humans and they like what they like. They want to they want to identify with people that believe what they believe. You know, we've done this since the very beginning when we choose, you know, what shirt do I want to wear when I'm five years old? So there's this interesting tension between we do this every day, we've done it from the beginning, but it's hard to get us to stick to that concept of what interests me, what do I believe, what do I identify with when we're in the marketing meetings. Your use of the word belief in the traditional marketing funnel, that's why we still talk about conversion. It's not like we're just wanting to uh, find everybody out there that vibrates to the tune we're singing. We're seeking to grow and develop community. And sometimes somebody comes into, into contact with your product and they discover how well it works and they become converted and they, then they become an evangelist for the product. Mm-hmm. Going back to the Simon Sinek talk where he uses Apple Computer as an example, it started with their why, and, and I don't know that we have time to get into that, but they also had the products to back it up. Mm-hmm. And so when you got an Apple product, it was less than 10% of market share. And yet 
we were a tribe. We were part of this community. And anybody that wanted to talk computers, I was going to stand there flat-footed, toe-to-toe, and convince them why their PC was a piece of junk and why my (laughs) Apple was a superior product. There was that much devotion and loyalty because I'd been converted. I had a PC, I got a Mac, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, and on that exact vein that kind of helps, I wanted to share this example as like a business example for right here and now is Slack. And admittedly, when I was prepping for this and I was sharing this idea with Matt, if I can say this, your first reaction when I said, I want to talk about Slack. I was like, oh, God. You were like, oh, gosh. And the great thing about his reaction is that when I was doing some research on this and I was looking up, you know, some information, I wanted to go straight to the source. So I read, found an article by Andrew Wilkinson of MetaLab. But that is the design, the UI design company that Stuart Butterfield and his team handed off the development to to create the interface. And Andrew Wilkinson says in his article that when they came to him and said, I want you to do this product, he had the same reaction that Matt had, which was, oh gosh, we've seen so many of these platforms. Like, why? Why would we do this? But he went through with it, and I'll share the article. But um, and Matt, was your response because you're so sick of hearing people rave about Slack that you like have Slack fatigue because everybody loves it so much? Yeah, and I think it's just because it doesn't feel like a new concept. It's chatting. It's but not. <laughs> yeah, it is It is, and it isn't. You know, it's a connected and sometimes closed, sometimes open kind of thing. But it has more in common than not with just about any DM platform that's been in the market right. for Correct. since yeah. forever. Yeah, you guys know our personal connection to Slack. We have a client. Uh, we did their branding and design. It's a company called Fat Apple. It's a working locally sourced organic farm in the Hudson River Valley. Um, and uh, we won an award, several awards actually, for the Fat Apple branding. And Fat Apple is owned by one of the founders of Slack. There you go. But the funny thing about Slack is that, yes, like Matt said, the reason he kind of was like, oh, geez, Emily, is because it's the same thing. Andrew Wilkinson recognized that this really was no different than a lot of other products out there. But his team went to work. They did see the brilliance in Slack. And he said that when people use it now, they often use the word fun. Slack is so fun to use. And so it's not a coincidence that it feels fun. He and his team went to work to make this app that would otherwise be a boring enterprise app like every other chat thing out there. And they made something fun because that's an emotion. That's a feeling. That's something that people want to share. So when they went to design it, they at the end they came up with three different differentiator it looks different it uses colors like a video game most enterprise platforms are blue and gray and white they have colors of confetti it feels different they did a lot of interaction design little micro interactions to make it fun when you you know start a new conversation delete something edit there's lots of little movements that make it feel like it's alive which is really nice and then it sounds different they did a lot of work on the copywriting. If there's an error or loading time, it's not just a little hourglass. It says, oh, no, something's wrong. We're embarrassed, you know, or it has some little cute emoji. Mm-hmm. I, w- I will say, mm-hmm. I mean, even just the name of the product, Slack, mm-hmm. I mean, that that's a great name. Facebook mm-hmm. came out with a sim- similar platform. It's called Work. Who wants to buy that? <laughs> I, I want to buy Slack, you know. Yeah, because and then, then you can call yourself a slacker. Yeah. And it's kind and of And then funny. Microsoft has a, a product called Teams. Mm. Oh, okay, Ooh. cool. Awesome. <laughs> no, I think I'll go for the Slack, you know. Yeah. Sounds fun. 
Yeah, and the the coolest thing about this and why I just love the story behind it, you should listen to the How I Built This with Stuart Butterfield. We'll include that one and this article from um, Andrew Wilkinson. But the cool thing is that they cared about the experience. And like Steve said earlier um, when we were talking about, what were we just talking about? I can't remember. But you said they have oh, Apple. Of course, you have to have a strong product to support it. No questions about it. But the idea of prioritizing how something feels, the experience of this product, it just it took the world by storm. And it's a perfect example in, this, in a B2B world because it's mostly used by businesses. You can use it as an individual. But when Slack came around, people... I'd run into people just like a few years ago and they're like, oh yeah, just get on Slack and you can join this conversation about whatever. And my husband uses it all the time. He's like, oh, so-and-so added me to the Slack channel. Isn't that cool for discussion of development stuff? And I'm like, yeah, who are all these people talking about Slack and why won't they stop talking about it? (laughs) Well, now I know. As far as like, like how to do this, it's easy to talk about, but I do want to emphasize that it's it's not always easy to implement um, because there's a few things that you really need to prioritize and believe yourself if you want to even start thinking about this idea of tribal devotion towards your brand. Um, first and foremost, like we totally understand this is not created overnight. It takes time. It takes dedication. It takes staying in tune with that belief long enough. Um, and this is like, Steve, you mentioned some tribal leadership, so we can jump into that. But first, I, I just wanted to say that one of the biggest things that's it's very hard because it kind of goes against human nature in general is that you need to be willing to be all about your customer and your people as opposed to um, your product. Mm-hmm. And I say that that's against human nature because we go about our every day doing things that we need to accomplish to get things done or this is what I want. But really to create these brands, you have to be all about the people that share your belief system that you have to prioritize the belief over anything else and i would 100 percent agree with that and yeah. we and we do find clients really struggle to believe that yeah they so badly want to sell their products and they so badly want to sell the features of those products mm-hmm. but the you know again the examples abound we keep going back to apple and that was in the simon sinek talk yeah. but they convinced everyone that they were the center of their digital lifestyle and that it was about simplicity and elegance and intuition and great design. And so that allowed them to traverse a number of different product lines. Exactly. When Apple came out with the iPod, we were surprised and delighted, but we didn't, it passed the sniff test for us. We weren't confused by it. When Dell Computer, on the other hand, that set out to sell cheap computers, you know, uh, best value computers for the money, let me put it that way. When they introduced their MP3 player, we were kind of like, wait a minute, aren't you guys the computer guys? Why are you selling MP3? It didn't make sense to us. Mm -hmm. And so if you can discover your why, that common set of beliefs, you put your customer and your people first, then you can kind of allow the business to morph and transform as it needs to. You know, if you say, I'm in the business of healing, Mm -hmm. well, you could be a medical doctor or you could be a massage therapist right. or an acupuncturist mm-hmm. or a psychoanalyst or, you know, a painter. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of places that idea can go that flex with the community's needs. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good way to, it's not just good living, it's good business. Yeah, and it, it is a little riskier to do it because it's not exactly a, a tangible thing, whereas your product, unless, I mean, software is not tangible, but, you know, whatever, yeah, maybe you, okay, Matt just gave me a little, <laughs> is it? But, you know what I'm saying, it's, it's a little scary to, to put all of 
put, to put all all of your uh, business into the idea of an emotion, it's a little scary. It's like, but I work on the product. I can control the product. And it's like, I know it's scary, but this will give you, like Steve said, you can the business can can morph and transform based on that that shared experience that you're putting out there. It's really really hard though to to get that to happen. Um, Another thing we said earlier, you need to be open to a two-way dialogue, and that's not always easy to implement just um, like logistically. So that's something, but you, your, your customer has to have a voice. I've worked so many places where they say, we just don't have the funds to do market research. We just don't have the funds to hear from the customer. And I'm like, you got to find the funds because you need to hear your customer. We can't just have internal stakeholders saying what they would like to have. They're not your customer. Mm-hmm. So having that two-way dialogue is huge. And something, Matt, you kind of reminded me of this idea of how so many um, brands offer a portion of their product in different forms because sometimes the best way, people are scared to take risk. And if you give a sample, you can get a taste. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, a tangible piece of software. <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting concept. I like that. I'm going to think about that on the side. But um, companies like Envision, companies like Twitter created uh, the CSS framework, Bootstrap, Bootstrap. Mm-hmm. and they gave it away for free. Yeah. Everyone makes fun of it now. They're like, oh, it's too restrictive. But when it came out, it was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and they gave it away for free, even though it probably took their developers you know, a couple hundred hours to develop it. Yeah. Um, Envision gives away UI kits for free. Various companies, we bought a wireframing kit, and you can actually download it for free first yeah. and get just a sample. And that convinces people, oh, well, now I, I've tried it. I can sink in that 150 bucks and get the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. I, you just made me think that in that Simon Sinek talk, he says, what you do proves what you believe. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say it. You can't just have nice copy. But those things like um, design platforms giving away a- assets or UI components, if you're giving that stuff away, just little pieces, your your actions are showing that, hey, we believe in design so much, we want to do anything we can to enable enable you to take part in good design. Exactly. So those UI kits are phenomenal. And then you're like, oh, well, if they made this, there's more good stuff where that came from. I'm going to jump on board. Yep. So that's an awesome example. Steve, you have talked a lot about this tribal leadership book, which I think is fascinating. Um, and you and Steve DeCaspers from US Cellular were talking about this, and your dialogue was fascinating me. I'm going to let you jump in on that because you said it better than I could. Well, it kind of is a segue from the last bullet point on your list, which is really, you know, you have to discover the personality of the brand. Um, And if it doesn't have one, you have to do some digging. You got to jump on You have to work to understand, you know, who are you? Who are we Mm -hmm. as a company? And this goes to, you know, whether you're trying to do company leadership and build culture, because we have heard from many that culture eats strategy for breakfast. This idea of tribal leadership, it's a book that was out that we we try to get folks around here to read it here and there. And I've done it in many staff talks until my brother Will told me to please stop. Um, (laughs) It's a book called Tribal Leadership, and it's written by Dave Logan and John King. Um, Great resource. It talks about the five stages of sort of becoming a tribe. And this is, again, this is a leadership book, so I'm not going to go and go through those five stages, but Mm -hmm. stage four is basically called tribal pride and it's when your your people are fully themselves everybody seems happy they're inspired they're genuine Um, the company or the culture emphasizes 
uh, shared core values. Um, you know, everyone is is a part of this thing, and they can feel that thing. And it's kind of the we're great mentality. And this is where Steve was talking about. You know, the, when when the when tribal pride gives you know comes into its own is born. There is a a shared belief that we're great and we can go against the common foe out there. You know, we're ready to go out and challenge anybody. Um, there's actually one stage beyond um, the we're great tribal pride stage, and that's uh, life is great. You know, life, that that's sort of an innocent wonderment phase, and I won't get into it. Mm-hmm. We'll, you know, there's a cheat sheet we could, we could give you a link to. Yeah. Um, it's worth thinking about because I think the bottom line is, what is it like? Is, is there a secret sauce that can be applied that allows companies to establish this sense of tribe inside the company with their workforce, um, and then share that with their buyer or their marketplace? Mm-hmm. And when that happens, that's kind of the brass ring. That is the Harley Davidson, yeah. um, the Zappos, the Apple Computer. Those companies started with their beliefs yep. and then let the products be, you know, just a by the way, this is what we make, this is how we do it. You know, that's something we want to keep hammering on. And I think what happens is too many companies just tend to short circuit that process. Mm-hmm. They're not willing to put in the difficult, you know, painstaking and time consuming work to figure out who are we, like, why are we doing this? And who is it we want to share that with? Mm-hmm. Who who can we find affinity with? The re- like part of the reason that why are we in business is so hard is because people usually say what their for so for software for example they usually want to say what their software does. We're in the business to make blank more efficient, and it's actually like yes that's what you do yes that's what your product does but there has to be more like we were working with one company who's has a software platform and kind of one of their big moments of discovery was that they're in the business of connecting different people that are previously or currently kind of disconnected and when we realized that hey you guys are really passionate about connecting people and they already had the culture in their company they like being connected in the company this that was huge it was a big differentiator for them to realize hey we connect people and we really want to connect these specific groups of people and our platform allows that to happen. Mm. That was a huge shift and it was awesome to see them do that. We work with Hilton worldwide and um, you would just think that would be an easy one. What business are you in Hilton? We're in the hospitality industry. They've had to dig deeper than that and they don't say that. They're in the personal renewal business. You know, they're in the business that happens when you have a great experience walking into a hotel lobby you get the card to your room you throw your bag on the floor and you flop down on the bed and you go ah it's a it's an oasis Mm -hmm. it's personal renewal they are in the business of personal renewal and so they had to dig deep to get below the product they're selling to Mm -hmm. kind of discover why and we've done that here it's been hard Mm -hmm. Um, we've discovered uh, that 15.4 is in the purpose and meaning business. We, we want to discover and create purpose and meaning through relationships. We do that in partnership with clients, and creativity is our what. Mm-hmm. We bring creative to bear so we can tell stories, but it's all about kind of discovering purpose and meaning. And we find that if that's happening, 
we can get excited about any brand selling anything that we believe in. Mm -hmm. If it's not happening, the money could be great, the creative could be pretty solid, and we're just going to all start getting bummed out and depressed. When, when the relationships go south, when we don't feel like we understand why we're doing something, we all get bummed out because that's why we're in business. And it took years for us to kind of discover that about mm -hmm. ourselves and put ourselves through our own process yeah. to get to that point. Which goes to show just how hard it is because it's just normal human tendency to like to kind of drift away from it. And it's so hard. Um I think another thing that kind of tags on with what you just said is that um, it's really important to do this, not so that you can be super successful, because if you listen to, I'm a big How I Built This fan, most people on How I Built This that are successful, they acknowledge, yes, I am very wealthy now, but, but they realize that like what's better is that they get to work at something that they really love every day. So I think one of the reasons it's important and why we're really passionate about this whole what is your why? Why are you doing this? Is because every day in everyday life, everybody would really like to have pleasant experiences amidst the routine and the ordinary. Now, the ordinary is not bad. It's just most days are kind of ordinary. You go to work, you provide for your family, you sync up with some friends. It's just pretty ordinary. But everybody wants to be understood. They want to identify with something or not identify with something. People just want to feel like humans. And when we establish our businesses and our reason for doing business based off of why, it comes back to humans. It comes back to caring about humans. And if we can establish these shared beliefs, I think it kind of makes our day and, and our, the way we delight in products and experiences a little bit more enjoyable. And we're not being sold to for the sake of being sold to. We're sharing beliefs. We're finding things that we love. We get to tell people that we care about, oh, I discovered this cool thing or, you know, oh, I love using Slack, whatever it is. Hey, your vans are cool. I like vans too. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. But I like your vans. I just don't think I could get away with them. <laughs> oh, well, you know. But yeah, I think it it comes back to establishing communities whether it's in work, the way that we work, what we like to eat, who we like to hang out with. I just think life's a lot better when we think about our shared beliefs and what makes life more fun. That's true. Here's a quote from a guy named Donald Norman. You might you might know him. Uh, he's Why would we know Donald? Why well, you mean? wouldn't, would you? <laughs> um, he, he's a big-time design and UI guy. He ah. founded uh, Norman Nielsen or Nielsen Norman Group. I get confused. Nielsen but Norman. Jacob yeah. Nielsen or Jacob. Um, <laughs> I think it's Jacob. Anyway. And you're a fan. Big-time usability guys. We're all Big-time big thinkers. Donald Norman this is a great one. Uh, one of the things, one of the life experiences that uh, propelled him into studying user interaction was being stuck between two glass doors in a lobby. So you walk in <laughs> through one set. He's like, where are the handles? There are no handles on the door. He didn't know how to get through. And he took that moment. I mean, that's kind of... That's terrifying. It's kind of silly, right? But he took that moment and launched a career out of it. So he it. says... He says, cognition attempts to make sense of the world. Emotion assigns value. So if you connect with your users through some kind of emotional bond, if you have that two-way conversation, mm -hmm. you're going you're gonna to do well, right? Yeah. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I've never heard him talk about tribal devotion, but mm -hmm. um, I think he would agree with us. Yeah, tribal devotion might be a bit of a buzzword, and some people might not like it because it's trendy but at the end of the day it just comes back to what good design is centered around and why we're talking about the design of experiences is that 
look at humans, understand them, empathize, value them. Right. And tribal devotion sounds a lot more positive than the cult of Mac. (laughs) You know? (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm glad you you brought that one up because Donald Norman is really a good thinker. And that's why all of us designers really like everything that he says. But it's because it makes sense. Yeah. So. Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, that is it for this week. I've really enjoyed this. It's been fun. Um, yeah. So hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, it's been fun. Always ha- a pleasure having Matt here. We, we're just going to keep you guessing whether he's going to come back or not. <laughs> Mystery guest. No. But yeah. We will talk to you guys again in about two weeks. I'm just going to. I'm just going to go on the record. I like Matt. I like Steve, and I like hearing my own voice <laughs> on Spotify, on Stitcher. At home, I play it for my kids. They're like, "Dad, stop! I like having stop playing this for me." (laughs) So, all right, guys, we'll talk to you again real soon. Peace. Goodbye. (laughs) Yo, this is Frank. You should rate this podcast because, damn it, it's the best one in the nation. And look, if you want something a little lighter, you should go to. 15.4 Studio on the Instagram. Check out our stories. Check out Workspace Wednesday. We think about the deeper meaning of objects that occupy the spaces on people's desks, the phenomenological impact of them. And, um, you know, we try and keep it fun and light and uh, just do it. Go. Go now. The Design of Experience is produced by 15.4, a creative agency located in Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland. Produced by Emily Wolf, engineered by Josh Frisch, with story and creative development by Matt DeVille and Steve Smallman.